Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense. Common knowledge. Or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do. But only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast, the Health, Medicine, and Bioscience Edition. Uh, It's my job to find the top people in their field. I've interviewed over 2,000 researchers, scientists, clinicians, etc. And today I have Nils Walter. He's a Francis Itz Collins Collegiate Professor of Chemistry, Biophysics, and Biological Chemistry, University of Michigan, uh, founding co-director at the Center for RNA Biomedicine. So, Nils, thanks for coming. How are you doing? Very well. Thanks for having me. Yeah, if you would, tell me about your work, your current uh, research and work. Yeah, so I came to the University of Michigan about 20 years ago, uh, working on RNA, ribonucleic acids, which is the cousin of DNA, DNA being the genome representative of the, in, in all our cells. And RNA is a fascinating molecule. So over the last uh, 20 years, I've discovered and worked on a number of different uh, phenomena in what we call RNA biology that uh, have potential applications also in medicine down the road. And so that has fueled my research group. Uh, In the meantime, I founded a Center for RNA Biomedicine, as you mentioned, which is a large grassroots effort by the university, about 150 faculty members uh, that are part of this larger center as a grassroots to bring together people from different disciplines and work together on using foundational RNA biology discoveries and translate them into medicines of the future. Well, in in our cells, I know that there's messenger RNA, there's guide RNA, there's micro RNAs, there's all a bunch of RNAs. So are RNAs described by their function or their fundamentally different structures and types of RNAs, or is it both? Like, What does the world of RNA look like? Yeah, it's some of both. So the human genome was sequenced uh, around 2001 through 2004. That was a $3 billion endeavor by the NIH and by a company that um, was founded by Craig Venter. And when sequencing was made possible of the human genome, initially the thought was, that most of the human genome would code for proteins. Initially, estimates were that maybe there's 1 million different proteins that are encoded in our genome. After all, the genome has 3 billion base pairs, and we already knew for a long time that three base pairs together encode ultimately down the road for one amino acid in a protein. So people thought that the human genome had the capacity to make many, many different proteins. But when the human genome was sequenced, it turned out that only 1.5% or thereabouts is actually coding for proteins. And most of the rest is ever only made into RNA, as we call this transcribed from DNA into RNA. And RNA, as the name applies, is very similar to DNA with the difference that it has uh, an oxygen more in the so-called sugar backbone of the RNA compared to DNA. And so this little difference then 
and the fact that it is made not in base pairs, that is in uh, double helical nature, but actually as a single strand of RNA that then can fold back on itself and form double helices on a single strand of RNA, that leads to uh, a diversity of different structures that then ultimately lead to different function. So to answer their question, ultimately, these, what we now believe, maybe 100,000 different RNA molecules that are encoded by the human genome, uh, at least 70% of the human genome is coding for such RNAs, are non-coding in nature, and as a non-coding or non-protein coding RNA, uh, serve a function that doesn't include them to be translated into proteins. And instead, they're involved in regulation of what a cell does. In fact, multicellular organisms like our body with something like 200 different cell types were only made possible probably by an explosion of non-coding RNAs in the genome that now regulate what a single cell does at what time in our body. And of course, occasionally something goes wrong, then you get a disease, but everything, if everything goes right, then a cell that is in the brain or in the heart muscle or in the liver can make different proteins to different extents at different times in the life of the cell to then become part of a different tissue and have a very different function in the body, even though all the cells share the same genome. And ultimately, uh, if you ask why is RNA used for that, um, it is because it can fold into very complex three-dimensional structures, just as complex as we know from proteins, very complex three-dimensional structures. The rules are a little different for how it folds back on itself and forms these helices and uh, what we call tertiary interactions, where in um, the molecule, um, long-range contact points are made. Uh, this is a little bit like building a complex building from individual components. That's exactly how our RNA folds into a very complex uh, three-dimensional structure. And these structures can have very complex functions um, ultimately as complex as making all the proteins in the cell. What uh, is the role of the so-called ribosome, which is most, mostly to two-thirds or so made of RNA. And RNA was probably the first catalyst to actually put two amino acids together into the smallest possible protein, which would be a dipeptide, and then knit... Well, one, knit one, more one second here. Okay. One second. Yeah. So you, you said a ribosome is composed of is it a structure that's composed of RNAs that's created from the combination of RNAs or? Yes. Yeah, so um, a ribosome in our bodies, for example, has three different RNA molecules. They are named by their size, which has something to do with sedimentation in the centrifuge. Uh, they are called 20S um, ribosomal RNA, 5S ribosomal RNA, which is a smaller one. And then the biggest one is the 34S um, ribosomal RNA. And so, yes, they are made um, by transcribing a piece of DNA into RNA, and then it folds into a very complex structure. It does recruit proteins for its full function, but it can have the same function of translating a messenger RNA into a protein already based on just the RNA component, presumably. So, um, and yes, so coming back to your question, can, uh, very complex structures can fold out of RNA. So therefore you can get very complex functions like that of the ribosome to translate uh, RNA into protein. But you can also 
utilize just the sequence information, and you mentioned guide RNAs before, as so-called microRNAs, which are one class of such non-coding RNAs that are involved in regulating gene expression, they together make up about 2% of the human genome, so more than all the protein-coding genes together. And this, um, these microRNAs uh, are acting mostly by sequence complementarity. That is, they have a sequence, and instead of forming a very complex structure, they're very small, and then bind a complementary messenger RNA by the classical Watson-Crick base pairing, and that helps the machinery called the RNA-induced silencing complex to regulate the expression of that gene. And that can be different in different cells. Again, a brain, a heart muscle, and a liver cell would make different proteins at different times, in part because of these microRNAs. So, so RNA is at the junction where um, the function comes both from the potential to fold into very complex three-dimensional architectures, but also from its ability to bind other RNAs just by sequence recognition alone, and then can recruit other components that ultimately lead to changes in how much of a protein is made at what time in what cell. So RNAs, for instance, can build proteins, but they themselves can fold like proteins. I mean, it seems like they have tons of different roles. That is correct. Yes. So um, I gave you those two examples, the ribosome being the most abundant enzyme on earth because every cell has thousands of ribosomes, uh, maybe hundreds of thousands of ribosomes, depending on the size of the cell and the complexity of the cell. And um, so it's very abundant. If we have something like 60 trillion cells in our body, you can imagine how many astronomical numbers of ribosomes there are just in a single person's body. And so you multiply this with all organisms across Earth, which does include also bacteria, of course, which also have ribosomes, then you have um, a really astronomical number of ribosomes. So it's very, very abundant, and it's a very complex machine that folds into this very complex three-dimensional architecture. Um, But that's only one example. There are other molecules, uh, as an example, um, transfer RNAs or tRNAs that are involved in actually translating the um, sequence of the genome that's transcribed into an RNA, what we call a messenger RNA, to translate that into a protein sequence by recognizing three, a sequence of three nucleotides on the messenger RNA and then translating, literally translating it into an amino acid code instead that then knits together the, on the, on the ribosome, knits together these different amino acids into a protein. And so that's another function. Uh, another function yet is, uh, are these microRNAs that are more regulatory in process. So they are a little bit, if you want to um, make the uh, analogy here with a a car factory, right? Which um, uh, seems appropriate because I'm in Michigan um, and we have the car industry here close by in Detroit and the vicinity. And so so the DNA might be the blueprint, but then the RNA carries that blueprint or details of that blueprint into, onto the, production floor, and then uh, the workers, some of them are actually RNA-based, like the ribosome, that then assembles the car, which is the protein. Uh, And in this assembly line, there are commands being given, also depending on the blueprint uh, that is um, read out in different ways or uh, differently interpreted, if you wish, in different cells. Um, There are commands being given by 
these regulatory RNAs that say, no, 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 don't add this part to this car, add another part, build a bigger roof, make it a, um, a convertible, make it into some different car, put a bit of, bigger engine into it and so forth. And so, so that's ultimately what the RNA molecules are doing. They are the foremen, they are also some of the workers that are working on the assembly line, and the output is the proteins, the cars that drive around um, and might um, ship things around uh, or, and move things in on the factory floor uh, and uh, are the struts that built the building. But, um, but again, RNA molecules have a very important role because they have a lot of different roles, as you said, in the cell, not only carrying uh, the blueprint to the floor, to the production floor, but also then ultimately are responsible for making sure that the right thing is built at the right time. Well, uh, when you look at RNA, how diverse are their forms? And is, are, they, are they diverse enough that it looks like they can accomplish literally anything? Do they have multiple active ends and cavities and spaces, just like proteins do? I mean, you know, when you look at their structure, what does that tell you? Mm -hmm. Exactly. So as an example, the ribosome is this very complex machine. It looks a little bit like a um, soft, uh, stuffed um, hand puppet uh, on one hand, and then there's a second hand. Uh, they are called the small and the large ribosomal subunits that come together just like two hands and interact with one another and hold the messenger RNA in between and ultimately lead to its being, it being translated into a protein. And so clearly there are crevices on the surface of those ribosomes crevices that are needed to bind the messenger RNA and then bind these transfer RNA or tRNA molecules that are the adapter molecules that translate the codons, as we call them, the three nucleotide sequences into amino acids to dictate the sequence of amino acids in a protein. Um, so there are crevices on the surface of these two subunits and they hold the messenger RNAs and tRNAs together in between the two of them. And that ultimately in between the large and small subribosomal subunit. And of course, these crevices then can also be used for drugs to bind. And uh, it's maybe not a surprise then that most antibiotics that are used today or many antibiotics that are used today are still targeting the ribosome because it has so many crevices that these small drug, mo drug molecules can bind to and then ultimately change the outcome, uh, delay the production of proteins, uh, disassociate the two subunits and, and break off translation that way. Um, so, so yes, they can have very complex three-dimensional structures that then have crevices um, and can lead to uh, functional interference by um, drugs that are therapeutic and, um, for example, help, help against um, bacterial infections. Um, on the other hand, um, there are many other uh, functions of RNAs, not all of them need these very complex three-dimensional folds. Um, some of them just act by being bound by a protein component that then um, makes sure that they splay open and have their what are called um, base pairs open for binding, open for business, if you wish, and then find a, another RNA in the cell that they bind to and uh, because they are complementary to, they make these Watson-Crick base pairs as discovered by Watson-Crick and DNA. And they make the same type of base pairs and, and ultimately recognize an RNA. And that then leads to uh, changes in the likelihood of that RNA ever uh, being used for something in the cell. 
Um, and, um, and so therefore, uh, leads to very powerful and very important um, processes that ultimately shape the cell and shape our, our body. I've heard a lot of people talk about RNA. What, it seems like their perspective is not nearly as expansive as yours. I mean, how do you think most scientists view RNA? They just look at it maybe at one of its functions or one of the, you know, in a certain part of the cell. I mean, like what's, again, what do you, and I know you're speaking for other scientists, but mm -hmm. what's your perception there? Is that valid what I'm saying? Yes. Um, so I have certainly uh, somebody who has worked on RNA for quite some time. In fact, I got interested into RNA when myself studying biochemistry back in Germany, where I went for undergrad and learning about what are called RNA enzymes or short ribozymes. These um, were thought, were discovered just a few years before I studied and there was a Nobel Prize in 1989 given to the discoverers of these ribozymes. And the fascinating thing was that for the first time we saw that an RNA can fold into this very complex three-dimensional architecture all by itself, doesn't even need any chaperones, doesn't need any help to do so, can fold on its own in the test tube, if you want to do that, uh, but also in the cell, of course, into this complex three-dimensional structure that then can catalyze a chemical reaction just like a protein does. So these enzymes uh, based on purely RNA or ribozymes um, were discovered and then for the first time laid open the possibility of how life on earth could have started because this gave support for the idea that there could have been an RNA world but basically all functions of a cell or all critical functions of the cell at least were reflected in RNA enzymes that did all the different things that a cell, the primitive cell might need. Making nutrients available, taking those building blocks and building them into bigger RNA molecules, those RNA molecules then becoming catalysts by way of their folding based on their sequence. And that particular structure now can help catalyze more reactions in the cell, make more nutrients available, build more complex architectures, and so forth, so that in the end you get, um, you can imagine at least uh, a primitive organism that might have been based only on RNA that lived in the primordial world and then ultimately gave rise to um, other more complex organisms that now were, became able by way of a simple ribosome version, the precursor version of our current ribosome of knitting together the amino acids that then made polypeptides or proteins and these proteins then were recruited by the RNA to make for a more efficient ribosome. And then other functions were adopted, enzymatic functions, catalytic functions were adopted by these protein enzymes that then emerged. And so um, much of that RNA world probably has ceased to exist, but um, ribosomes are still a remnant of this first RNA world, uh, according to this hypothesis at least. And um, maybe some other functions, tRNAs are probably these transfer RNAs that are responsible for, again, translating the codons of the messenger RNA into polypeptide are probably also ancient. The enzymes that then were able to link a tRNA with a particular amino acid so that the translation process could occur um, were also ancient enzymes, but they were then protein enzymes, perhaps because proteins could ultimately do functions like that a little bit more efficiently. And so to me, starting in the RNA field um, in the yeah, late 1980s, I guess, or 1990s really, um, 
it was fascinating to think that there might be a link still in existence to the origin of life. I, for my PhD, studied the origin of life and um, did some reactions in the test tube that mimic uh, evolution in the test tube uh, of molecules. And so you can actually do Darwinian evolution of molecules in a test tube. And again, you need ribozymes for that because you need catalytic activity. And the ribozymes basically solve the chicken and egg problem that proteins have because proteins cannot replicate themselves and they need a machinery that involves RNAs to replicate. And so, but an RNA does not need proteins to replicate potentially. And so that's the one molecule that can have both in its sequence, hereditary genetic information, as well as in the, the ability to fold into a complex three-dimensional structure can have the catalytic activity that leads to inheritance itself, to replication itself. And so it solves this chicken and egg problem that, of course, um, to me at the time was a very fascinating idea and drew me into the RNA field. And lo and behold, when the human genome then was sequenced in 2001 to 2004, somewhere around there, uh, we re realized that um, much of the human genome is actually also still coding for RNA. In fact, more than it does in a bacterium, presumably, again, because you need for multicellular organisms to resurrect much of the, these RNA functions. And you have many, many more RNA functions now um, embedded in our genome. And ultimately, um, I would argue the reason why there is such a um, revolution um, currently going on in the RNA field is because it's only 15, 20 years ago that we realized the, to the full extent all the different things that RNAs can do. We still discover many, many more functions. And um, we are basically 60 years behind protein research. And so our, the RNA field is rapidly catching up now in terms of understanding what all these RNAs are doing. Clearly, you need DNA, RNA, and proteins all in order to bring life as we know it, but RNA molecules were for a long time overlooked and understudied and underappreciated. And um, as the underdogs, so to say, are still catching up at this point, but that makes the field so exciting right now. So what, um, you may have answered this before, I just didn't get it, but what, what creates RNA? What, you know, what, where is its biogenesis? Yeah, the, the RNA is made by this process of transcription where a DNA sequence is what we call transcribed into RNA. That is a relatively straightforward process because the enzymes that do this, RNA polymerases, are very similar to the enzymes that copy a strand of DNA and are called DNA polymerases. Um, and ultimately, RNA, by way of its ability to form Watson-Crick base pairs with a DNA molecule, just like the duplex of the DNA that's known to be part of our genome or to represent our genome is um, RNA can be copied in a similar fashion as DNA by making these Watson-Crick base pairs. These RNA polymerases basically start synthesizing a piece of RNA based on a DNA sequence they find. They need a so-called promoter, which is essentially a start point. Basically, the genome says, please start making an RNA from here on down and then an RNA polymerase is recruited and then starts copying one of the two strands, the so-called template strand, into a Watson-Crick base pair copy on the RNA level and then separates that synthesized RNA from the DNA. The DNA zips back up to its duplex and then the RNA 
is born as a single strand in this transcription process. And in bacteria, this happens inside the cell that is all mixed, that has the DNA and the RNA and the ribosomes that then take some of these RNAs, the messenger RNAs, to make proteins from it um, upon its extraction, um, all mixed in one cell. In our bodies, there's a so-called nucleus that contains the DNA where the RNA is being synthesized and then leaves through what are called nuclear pore complexes, so little holes in the membrane, leaves the nucleus and then is functioning as a template for protein synthesis as a messenger RNA or to regulate other messenger RNAs um, in this, what we call cytoplasm, the outside of the nucleus. But yes, so the, the synthesis is the same across all organisms. It's these RNA polymerases that copy the DNA into an RNA molecule and then separate the RNA molecule from that DNA template so that the DNA can zip back up. And it's these um, many, many different RNAs that are made in our nucleus that ultimately give rise to the complexity of the cell. Can RNAs be made in other places? Or is it just, the, you know, the, the DNA in the nucleus? I mean, what about mitochondria or ribosomes? Yeah, that's a good question. So mitochondria have their own processes with which they make a couple dozen or so proteins, which requires the so-called mitochondrial chromosome, which is a short piece of DNA, which presumably once was a bacteria chromosome, but then the mitochondria or the precursor of it was gobbled up by a larger eukaryotic cell and then eventually evolved to become a mitochondrion. Some of that genetic information from this former bacterium was transferred into the nucleus, actually a large part, 90%, but there's a little bit left in the mitochondria. So they have their own little DNA genome, and that also codes for these two dozen or so proteins that are used in the mitochondria. And um, yes, there's RNA transcription happening there that gives rise to some of the proteins in the mitochondria that becomes uh, our the power center uh, of the cell. There are also other processes um, there in, at least in plants. They're so-called RNA-dependent RNA polymerases. So they are RNA polymerases, just like the one that I just described, but they actually use RNA itself as a template rather than DNA molecule. Same thing applies, right? You can take an RNA and then the copying process into a complementary Watson-Crick-based bird sequence can occur by way of an RNA polymerase, except that this is now an RNA-dependent polymerase. That is, it uses an RNA template. And in plants, at least, when a virus infects a cell, a plant virus that has an RNA genome, then that can trigger an intracellular immune response, the same RNA-induced silencing complex that I mentioned earlier. And plant cells, in order to defend themselves efficiently, can actually copy such a foreign RNA and make progeny of that, copy that in the cytoplasm, and thereby trigger more of this RNA interference process that ultimately gets rid of the viral infection intracellularly. So that's another example where uh, a transcription process can occur. Um, but those are rather the exception than the rule. In most cases, at least, in, I mean, our cell, in our bodies, uh, a large majority of RNAs are made by three different RNA polymerases, simply called one, two, and three, and they make different types of RNAs in the cell. Ribosomal RNA is made by a different RNA polymerase than a messenger RNA, for example. But um, by and large, 
the vast majority of 99% of self RNAs are made in the nucleus probably. So what's uh, what specifically, you know, you've spoken a lot about it. What's your research about at this moment? What's particular aspects you're looking at? Yeah, so my lab actually uses what are called single molecule fluorescence microscopy tools. So modern microscopy tools are sensitive enough to see single molecules. And of course, seeing is believing. So now that we can actually detect them, we can see them, we can do a number of things. For one, we can study how they work, how they operate, how they come go about their function. And we can do that with all sorts of processes that I just described. For example, we can ask, how does a microRNA recognize its target messenger RNA to lead to regulation? And you can basically ask the question, okay, if I have a single microRNA, what's the likelihood that it binds a messenger RNA? Can I see it hopping on to that messenger RNA and hopping back off? I can, we can also do studies where we look at the architecture of the RNA of interest. And in that case, we use a tool that's called single molecule fret or fluorescence resonance energy transfer. So this is a tool that measures the distance between two dye molecules or what we call fluorophores. And when they are far apart, we get a green signal. When they're close together, we get a red signal. So we can see how single molecules switch between green and red and back to green. That tells us something about the structure of the RNA are the two sites where we have put the um, fluorophores onto the RNA. Are they far apart and give us a green signal or are they close together and give us a red signal? And the nice thing is that at the single molecule level, a molecule undergoes all sorts of um, hopping events, if you wish. So if it has different structures that it adopts over time, then in one case, it would be green. In another case, it would be red. And then it jumps back to green. So we see this hopping back and forth in the color of, that we detect from such a single molecule. And that tells us something about the speed with which it can undergo these shape changes and architectural changes that then we can relate to function of this RNA molecule. So what are some examples? How fast can RNAs change shape? Or does, it, does a given RNA change function? when it changes shape, or does it stay as in messenger RNA always, for instance? Yeah, no, it can actually change what it does. Typically, it can go between a functional and a non-functional state. But non-functional states are important. So if the function is to accept, for example, by in, a, in the case of the messenger RNA, to accept the ribosome, to bind the ribosome so that the ribosome can make a protein from the message, then it can either make its binding site available to the ribosome or it can occlude it. And if it's occluded, of course, the ribosome cannot land and cannot make a protein. So in this way, by these conformational changes, you switch between a functional state, if you wish, as a messenger RNA being able to be read out and made into a protein or a non-functional state where now the ribosome can no longer access it. And so we, yes, can study um, these conformational changes, these um, shape changes. Um, and if we see, say, a green signal, then we know the binding site of the ribosome is accessible. So now it can bind, it can go forward and make a, uh, a protein. Or when it hops to red, we know, okay, now this is basically a stop sign. It cannot, I mean, the ribosome cannot do anything. And so it's kind of like uh, a street uh, light, right? It goes between yes to no and back to yes. And the time that it spends in the green state and the accessible state uh, versus the red state may be dependent on particular conditions in the cell. If the cell, for example, needs to make more of a particular metabolite of a particular nutrient that it needs to build its own 
machinery, then it might go, this RNA could go more or should go more to the green state. So the ribosome now makes more of the protein. However, if there's enough of this metabolite or this building block already present in the cell, then the RNA changes shape and goes to a non-functional red state and the ribosome no longer makes the protein that would make more of this metabolite available to the cell. So it's kind of a, what we call a negative feedback loop. And so in this way... But, but uh, what happens to ribosomes when they quote unquote die? Do they get recycled? Are they persistent? You know, they're made, but what, what happens to them after a while? Do they have a certain number of functions and then they're, uh, they're taken apart and reused? Yeah, so multiple answers here. So ribosomes are actually very stable in a cell. They can live for... Um, potentially days, if not longer. And they are actually, as I said before, built from two components, what we call a small and a large subunit. And each time they encounter a messenger RNA, this messenger RNA binds first to the so-called small subunit, like a hand being held by this ribosomal subunit. Messenger RNA basically drapes around the neck in this small subunit. And then only then does the large subunit bind and close the two hands, if you wish. And then because the large subunit has the ability to um, what we call do a peptidyl transfer reaction that is knit two amino acids together, you need the large subunit to actually make the polypeptide. And so after a messenger RNA is read out into a polypeptide, into a protein, then the two subunits part ways again and can do this over and over and over for days. On the other hand, the messenger RNA is much more labile. The messenger RNA, if it doesn't recruit all that many ribosomes to get translated, then chances are that a so-called ribonuclease, an RNase, is hopping onto the messenger RNA instead. And this is an enzyme that would degrade and, um, and destroy the messenger RNA. So in, in, in a sense... The messenger RNA, or the, if you wish, the two machineries, the one that uh, is represented by the ribosome and makes the protein from the messenger RNA, and the other machinery that degrades the messenger RNA are competing for the same messenger RNA. And the messenger RNA that's not used will be degraded, but the messenger RNA that's used a bit will be used even more. And so that way the cell knows what to make at what time. And if it doesn't need a protein made anymore for a while, then it gets rid of the messenger RNA and stops making that protein altogether. So you get these um, feedback loops, as we call them, that ultimately by the complexity of the circuitry that you can build from there, uh, give rise to life as we know it. So again, where do, uh, I mean, do ribosomes, again, do they get, not ribosomes, uh, RNA, do they get disassembled? or just not used, and then they become constituent parts of other molecules, or what happens to them? So one reason, I, this answers actually another uh, the, a question that you had for me earlier, which was um, people are still somewhat um, reluctant to get into the RNA field. That is sometimes because RNA is more labile than DNA is in particular. That is, this extra oxygen that is in the backbone in this ribose molecule, which is sugar molecule in the backbone, uh, leads to a side reaction that allows for the degradation or destruction of a messenger RNA or any RNA for that matter, more efficiently than you would have in DNA where there's no such oxygen, you get uh, a less, uh, a more restrictive chemistry. That is the degradation is not as simple. And 
So that can be a bad thing if you want to work in the lab with RNA because your RNA, by way of contaminating it from with these ribonuclease enzymes that you might find on your fingertips, uh, you destroy your RNA and that's inconvenient and people sometimes feel that RNA is quite labile. But in the context of the cell, that's absolutely critical. That's in fact why RNA is used instead of DNA to have all these various functions in the cell because it's a transient element that ultimately leads to which genes are expressed from the genome at what time. And the genome being always the same, only the only decision that's made by the cell is which part of the genome is being expressed and ultimately made into functional RNAs or made into proteins. And in order to change that over time, by um, by necessity, to actually, you actually need to degrade these RNA molecules because if you made one set of RNA molecules at some point when you want to differentiate into a brain cell and eventually that differentiation has happened, you must get rid of those RNA molecules to make other RNA molecules, for example, in the brain that allow for communication between the different nerve cells. And so you need to get rid of one set of RNAs to make space for a different set of RNAs. And degradation means that the RNA is cut down into individual building blocks, the so-called nucleotides, and they are being reused and being reshaped into a different RNA molecule, by, again, by the process of transcription. The RNA now that's made anew is a different one that was made uh, 24 hours ago. And as a consequence, now you make a different set of proteins and the cell starts behaving differently than it used to be 24 hours ago. So the transient nature of RNA depends on this ease of degradation and destruction and ultimately is the link between the genome that is always the same from cell to cell and the function of the cell, which depends on where it, is, where it lives in the body, uh, what developmental stage it is in. Is it in a fetus? Is it in a, an adult? And also what the outside cues are that it needs to react to, right? Because sometimes when nutrients are sparse, then the cell needs to recover some energy from other sources that say degrade its own proteins to make more energy available. And so changes that are dependent on the environment, on the nutrient status of the body, on, I mean, how hydrated, dehydrated the body is, or other things leads to changes in terms of what the cells in the body have to do and are the, the very transient nature, the ability to be made and, and disposed, disposed of quickly is critical for such a dynamic function of the cell. And that's what RNA is doing for the cell. How much of the function of RNA occurs inside a given cell versus outside, maybe through extracellular vesicles? Yeah, this is a fascinating question that is still being researched. So I would say that for the survival of the cell, the intracellular processes are dominant, and that's why they have been studied so far in, uh, by majority. However, extracellular RNAs do exist. They can be used as biomarkers of disease. We, in fact, developed a single molecule fluorescence-based technique to diagnose diseases based on such extracellular RNAs, uh, for example, microRNAs. Now, why the cell makes them is still under debate. 
it may just be that a cell in the body dies, and this could happen to two more cells of a cancer, of course, because they are sick, so they might die uh, with a higher probability. And when the cell dies, it, of course, sheds its contents, and there will be RNAs in that content that then circulate through the bloodstream. And, I mean, for all we know, might just be there because they are uh, degradation products of the cell as a whole and can absorbed by other cells that then rebuild them into their own molecules of life. And that's the end of it. However, there's also mounting evidence that they actually can be used by other cells. They can actually actively reprogram other cells in the body. And there's some evidence, for example, in the context of cancer, that uh, the microRNAs that cancer cells produce, even when they are alive, they make these extracellular vesicles, sometimes referred to as exosomes, and these exosomes course through the bloodstream, and in the minimum what they do is impact other cells around them and perhaps tell um, blood cells, white blood cells that not normally degrade or destroy a tumor cell to hold off and not do that right now, or it may induce other cells around it to use less oxygen, which may be a reason why tumors actually use uh, glycolysis, which is an oxygen-free uh, process of creating energy from glucose, from sugar in the body. And tumors primarily use glycolysis instead of other processes that ultimately oxidize the glucose into CO2. And perhaps that's because the cells talk to each other in the tumor and say, look, um, let's do more of this glycolysis because that's more en energy efficient for us. We can just um, be parasites and take all the glucose from the body and not worry about producing or doing something that's um, more benign to the body because we are cancer cells, right? And so, so as such, the tumor may talk to, I mean, the tumor cells may talk to one another by these extracellular RNAs. There's also evidence that in the brain, much communication between nerve cells occurs through extracellular RNAs. And, but again, that's all still being debated, hotly debated, because um, many of those things are difficult to study. Um, if you want to isolate the RNAs, can you know where they came from? Do you know exactly how they were synthesized by a cell? Um, can you control for the content of these extracellular vesicles? Um, those are very difficult, technically difficult things. And therefore, there's still a lot of um, confusion in the field as to what exactly the function of these RNAs are. But I think um, down the road, we'll probably understand better how extracellular RNAs are actually involved in reprogramming other cells in the body. Well, very good. Well, Niels, you know, there's a lot more to talk about here, but what, what's the best way for people to get in touch, to ask questions, and to see some of the papers that you've written? Yeah, I mean, you can um, obviously take our webpage and my email address. I think they are in the signatures, the electronic signatures um, I gave you. So uh, you can find um, me at nwalter, W-A-L-T-E-R, at umich.edu for universityofmichigan.edu. And you can find, um, if you just search for Niels Walter Lab, um, our webpage easily by Google. Um, so anyone is happy. Is, uh, I would, I'm always happy to hear from people. Very good. Well, Niels, thank you for coming. I appreciate it. Sure. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. 
If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.